If someone has never met you and they were to ask you to share something about yourself, what would you say? What would you say to them? Do you even know? So many have been struggling in the last few years to understand who they really are. Asking questions like, what am I here for? Is there a purpose for my life? What difference can I really make with everything going on right now? Is life even worth living with everything going on? To the hopeless plea of, will anyone miss me if I'm gone? You see, these are all questions we struggle with from time to time. But I think especially in the last couple of years, with everything going on around us, there's an internal dialogue that we're having with ourselves that we won't readily admit to others. It's a reality check. It's a crisis with our identity. And today, if we were to be honest, there are questions we've wrestled with that we've never really wrestled with in the past. As politics themselves have created the identity crisis. Pick your side. If you're not on my team, I don't want to talk to you. As health issues have created an identity crisis. As tensions between family and friends have created an identity crisis over our vaccine stance. All of these things that we would have never considered to be a problem with our identity have become a reality in the last couple of years. In fact, if you were to look at articles, recent news articles, it says synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl, cause nearly two-thirds, or 64%, of more than 100,000 drug overdose deaths in the U.S. in the 12-month cycle ending in April 2021. This is staggering. Up 49% from the year before. The CDC's National Center for Health Statistics found. Church, we have an identity crisis. It abounds in today's culture, and it manifests itself in many different ways. Scripture has much to say about our identity, and it's very important that we line up our definition with what it says from the very Word of God revealed to us. The Word teaches, convicts, encourages, but it always tells us the truth about ourselves. Unlike the many voices in our head or in society which constantly lie to us about what it means to be happy in this life. Today we'll be really looking at two words which all of mankind is defined by. Good and evil, or sinner and the saint. Both of these words are used in Scripture and are twisted and redefined by those who seek to harm namely the devil and his demons. Number one, we're going to be looking at defining identity. Number two, we'll be looking at illustrating identity. And number three, overcoming false identity. Number one, defining identity. Before we look at the Word of God and Scripture, I want us to see what the world itself says, maybe even without our realization, of what it means when it comes to our identity. Psychology Today, in its article titled, The Real Meaning of Good and Evil, says the following. It's a dangerous oversimplification to believe 
that some people are innately good while others are innately evil or bad. Human nature is infinitely more complex than this, of course. In human beings, good and evil are fluid. People can be a combination of good and bad qualities. It continues, good means a lack of self-centeredness. It means the ability to empathize with other people, to feel compassion for them, and to put their needs before your own. It means, if necessary, sacrificing your own well-being for the sake of others. Evil people are those who are unable to empathize with others. As a result, their own needs and desires are of paramount importance. They are selfish, self-absorbed, and narcissistic. In fact, other people only have value for them to the extent that they can help them satisfy their own desires or be exploited. Other human beings are just objects to them, which is what makes their brutality and cruelty possible. As you continue reading this article, I found the most revealing part of this article was this next line. Most of us lie somewhere between the extremes of Gandhi and Hitler on the spectrum of human behavior. Sometimes we may behave badly when egocentric impulses cause us to put our needs before the welfare of others. Sometimes we behave in a saintly fashion when empathy and compassion impel us to put the needs of others before our own, resulting in altruism and kindness. You see, the truth is, many Christians hold exactly this view. If you were to ask them who they are or how they identify, they would define it just like this. Which is why we feel like a saint when we've done something nice for someone. Our kind deed for the day. But is that all that Scripture says about good and evil or the sinner and the saint? Is that what Scripture itself says? Well, let's look at Strong's Concordance and define it. Transliteration agathos. The definition in Scripture is good. Usage. Intrinsically good. Good in nature. Good whether it be seen to be so or not. The widest and most colorless of all words with this meaning. Helps word studies fills in the detail, which I think is very important as we'll be looking at texts of Scripture here soon. Agathos, inherently, intrinsically good. As to the believer, Agathos describes what originates from God and is empowered by Him in their life through faith. Thayer's lexicon, Agathos, excellent, distinguished, upright, honorable, acceptable to God. Now let's take a look at the opposite of this. Evil. The word for evil as defined in Strong's, transliteration, kakos. Definition, bad, evil. 
usage, bad, evil, depraved, wicked in the widest sense. Helps Word Study says the following, Kakos, properly, inwardly foul, rotten, poisoned, figuratively, inner malice flowing out of morally rotten character. And Thayer's lexicon, Kakos, of a bad nature, not such as it ought to be, base, wrong, wicked, troublesome, injurious, pernicious, destructive, baneful. There are many other Greek words that carry forth this idea of evil, such as paneros, which carries a very similar idea of evil, wicked, or malicious. But the best way to see what Scripture means is by looking at how these words are used in this context. Whether it's good or evil, or sinner and saint, the context will determine for us more precise details than just a mere definition will. Now let's illustrate what Scripture actually teaches on this. Number two, illustrating identity. As has already been alluded to in the definition of good, Scripture defines good as something originating with God himself. This is so important, believer. If you get this one wrong, you will never have the right definition. You will never have the right definition. Good is defined by God himself. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 1, we find how God defines good. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed it is in itself on the earth. And it was so. <clears throat> and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, 
and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. This phrase, God saw that it was good, repeats until we get to verse 31, where it says, at the end of creation, when God had created man, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. When God first formed this world, he saw that it was good because he himself is good. He saw that all of his creation, and after creating man on the seventh day, he saw that it was very good, a reflection of his perfection. There is a sense in which the Hebrew conveys the idea of functioning properly or functional. It really comes alive when you see the man being alone and God says it's not good for him to be alone. So there you have it. Man was not functioning properly until God brought him a woman, essentially. The animals were not cutting it for Adam. They weren't the perfect companions in any way, even if dogs are man's best friend. Man needed a woman, and that was what was good for him, because God considered that to be good for him, which goes even further to understanding why marriage is defined by God itself. God defines marriage. He himself defines that. Jesus himself clearly tells us in his encounter with the rich, rich young ruler that God alone is good. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. In verses 17 through 22. This is Jesus. Now, as, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit, inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now this is an absolutely fascinating encounter that we see here. Jesus has a rich young ruler asking him about how he can inherit eternal life. And he calls Jesus out and says, good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? To which Jesus responds 
by asking why he would call him good. Because God alone is good. Jesus recalls those commandments to him, which many of us don't think of as good from a good God many times. To which the young man reclaims he has kept from his youth. Now, whether he was completely self-deceived or just lived an upright life by the letter of the law is up for debate. But Jesus was going after something greater than that. Jesus is going for the heart, whereas man is always looking for the exterior, which is usually the way we define good. When we think of a good person, we think of what they're doing on the outside, because that's all we can see. God is always looking on the inside. Always. For God, motives matter. For God, the root matters. For us, the visible fruit is all that matters. What's interesting to see, now I actually believe this man is a believer later on, because it says specifically that Jesus loved him. I think this is, this is a particular phrase there that the author includes for us to know that one day he came to saving faith. It says that Jesus loved him. Jesus points to the thing that kept him from full surrender. His money. Oh, Jesus, I've done everything that the commandments say. Okay? Sell all you have, give to the poor, you're going to be absolutely rich in heaven. Jesus is going for the heart. He's not going for the exterior. This man was probably a very nice guy. Probably had a very good reputation. As with so many of us, if Jesus was to point to the very thing that we're not willing to give up, we might walk away and shame ourselves instead of giving up what it is that he'd call us out for. You see, that's the reason why we have so many problems is we define good based on our own terminology. We define good based on what we think is good rather than what he says. God is good. Believer, his commandments are good. You not following them is what shows to you and me that no one is good but him because we're incapable of following them. Unfortunately, so many of us don't realize that we're not good ever since man fell in the garden. In fact, Adam and Eve were the only ones that were considered good before sin entered. But ever since the fall, the default is not good for every person entering this human race. We're not good in and of ourselves. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Those of you that grew up in Awana know these verses. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. But I'm a good person. 
You need to struggle with Scripture on this, what you think is good. The default for every one of us is we're not. In and of ourselves, no man is good. Paul here is arguing in Romans chapter 3 that it doesn't matter if it's a heathen or a religious person. There is none that does good. The one that's keeping a moral code is still not good. Because it goes beyond that. Hearing God's commandments or practicing simply as a religious person fully aware does not define you as good if you don't have His righteousness. Isaiah 5, verses 20 and 21. Very true for our culture today. It's been true through the test of time. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. God is calling out Judah here in this chapter of Isaiah for their wickedness, which they continually committed against him, arguing that it was good when it was evil. They were constantly dealing with the serious problem of drunkenness and found it absolutely fine, as many still do today when it comes to their own sin. Which is why when you leave it to man to define good, they're going to twist the word. If you left it up to us to define good, we'd all come up with different definitions. And usually we'd put ourselves on that list. If we know that God is good and we are evil, though we may do what we consider good things, how exactly does this this play out into the sinner versus the wicked, and the saint versus the holy identity that we see in Scripture. Well, we see this, that Jesus became sin for us to give us His righteousness. Jesus became sin for us to give us His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, apart from Christ, you and I identify as a sinner, period. Doesn't matter how many good things that we define in this life as good, we do. The identity is already rooted in our heart. And the truth is, anyone but Christ cannot change our position. 
There's not a person on this earth that can change our status from sinner to saint apart from Christ. Those of us that have placed our faith in him and believe that he died and rose for our sins, we are declared righteous. We are declared saints. We are declared holy. The reason this matters so much is that God is primarily concerned with our hearts, and we're always primarily concerned with our actions. We think that as long as we do something good today, we'll be defined by that good. Is it no wonder that many of us flip-flop all the time, not realizing that there's a deeper issue behind the scenes? God cares enough to go to the root of the problem. We care just wanting the fruit to look good to others. So why is it that we struggle to live out our identity? If we're saints, if we've placed our faith in Christ, why is it that right now so much of the church is struggling to live out their identity? Why is it that so many think they're good and they may not be in this world? Well, it's important for us because, number three, we need to overcome the false identity. Overcoming false identity. The first way is declaration is not lined up to practice. So many of us have heard this first. Many of us have memorized it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We know this verse. We've heard it many times. For some reason, it doesn't resonate. There's something that has to be wrong. It says all things have become new. And I'm still struggling with the same old mess. I'm still the same me. Struggling against that sin. That means I can't be good or a saint, right? I must be evil or the sinner that's condemned. Church, this is why it's important to look at the context. In the context, all things are the new. That is everything that accompanies our position before God. We were once enemies with a record of crimes committed which were erased because Jesus took it upon himself, making us right before God. The old life is now gone. The new life has begun. The new life is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is why it is new. We never had the Holy Spirit indwell us before. You see Christ through a new lens, spiritually speaking. Before we came to saving faith, we saw him as a good teacher, as this rich man did. As a good moral person. Some Christians found him to be an excellent renegade for a cause. But many of us did not see him until the Holy Spirit revealed to us as our Savior as our Lord and Master. And we never even considered what it meant to be a disciple of His, 
to follow him. That's what becomes new. There's a different desire that's now been placed within us to care for the things of God, unlike the things that we cared for before. He is now our Lord and Master. He's our Savior that's rescued us. We are his disciples. That's what's new. There very well may be self-deception involved with many that proclaim the name of Christ, as Jesus himself says, that many will say, Lord, Lord, in your name we did all these things, all these good things, cast out demons, performed miracles. We did a lot of amazing things for you. And Jesus says publicly to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who disregard my commandments. You see, Proverbs 28.9 says this, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. The reason why so many do not have their prayers heard is because they don't care for this at all. They don't care for this at all. And they're praying and begging God to hear them when he's saying, you haven't started in the right place. If there's a sincere struggle, believer, with sin in your life, you're a saint. That's a good sign that there's a struggle. If you can sin with no regard to what you're doing against God and how it hurts him, you may very well be in danger. You may be spiritually walking dead. There are many who will be fooled into thinking that they are just fine because they came to a good church, repeated a prayer, got baptized under a good preacher, went to a good church years past, only to be further away from God than they were when they were first exposed to their need for Christ. This is the tough part of being a pastor. Because in some sense, you want to encourage the struggling saint, but you also want to convict the sinner that's away from God. And you have to leave it to the Holy Spirit to convict each person. Because the truth is, we don't see the inside. God does. It's astounding the many professions of faith that have been made without so much as a confession of sin for many years to follow. So many of us have become such saints that we don't even know the last time we've asked for forgiveness. As if we've arrived. And if we know anything of Scripture, we know we haven't arrived. If the Apostle Paul still struggled, let me me guarantee one thing. You do too. He lived a more upright life than most of us do. I'd, I'd venture to say probably all of us. That doesn't mean you give up, saint, if you're struggling with sin. That doesn't mean that when you see someone else give up, you just decide to give up as well. You are to keep going. You are to have that press-on attitude that Paul says, I press on towards that calling. Because the truth is, you're going to fall. 
It's in your desire to keep his commandments that you will have assurance, though, that you are his. Practice gives assurance. Listen, believe this is one of the biggest things that I can say today. If you're struggling with your identity, many times it's because what you're living isn't lining up with this. And that is why that struggle is so real for all of us. But listen to what 1 John 2, 1 through 6 says. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him. This is for you, saint, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You want assurance? By the power of the Holy Spirit, do what this word says. Doesn't mean you won't struggle. That is not at all what this text is saying. In fact, it says if we sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's already offered the sacrifice for us if we are saints. If you want assurance of salvation, do as God commands in His Word. Be holy as He commands. <clears throat> Believer, your practice does play a major role in your assurance. You better bank on it. What you do does matter. If you're not caring to obey what God's Word clearly reveals, yet you still somehow have assurance of your salvation, you may very well be very deceived. Which is why churches that say a lot of the morals in Scripture aren't that important are teaching people that God's standard isn't what it really is. And if God is good and He defines what good is, maybe we've been the wicked ones that have twisted what evil is and redefined it to be good in our culture. And unfortunately, many churches. If you are declared a saint, you and I ought to live like one. Listen, church, you are given a new nature in order to do good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why? Because we're in Christ. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A Christian that is not practicing their faith is not living what God had planned for them. 
We were created for this, saints. To live a life of good works. To please God. The problem is, if we're looking at good works from a purely human standpoint, then we fall into the trap that many in the world fall into. When it comes to doing good, as one author defines it, we'll think of it in one of four ways. Number one, utilitarian. Whatever produces the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Or number two, pragmatic. Whatever appears to work where happiness, positive, or consequences, negative, is concerned. Or number three, whatever is right for that particular person in that particular situation. Or number four, emotive. Whatever feels right. The truth is, church, it is of utmost importance that we check our standard against the very Word of God. You see, for example, I may feel the good work would be caring for someone across the, across the globe, but end up not using God-directed discernment and give to an organization that promotes everything I don't stand for. Well, I want to do a good work, so I'm going to go ahead and give to an organization that is telling people that it's helping. Like Planned Parenthood, right? Sounds good as a title. Very deceptive. Very deceptive. It's amazing the garbage Christians support that they don't even realize is completely blasphemous against the Word of God. I won't offend anyone, so I won't say anything at all. Making everyone happy. When the good work that God wants you to do is actually say something. That person just needs me to be there for them as they're making poor decisions in their life. When God clearly tells you and me that we ought to warn our brothers and sisters when they're about to fall. One of the most dangerous things that I see practiced in churches and out in the world is when people use these phrases like, I'm so happy for you. And it ties into someone living a sinful lifestyle. I'm so happy that you're happy. And what's really detrimental about that is it's defined based on someone's feelings rather than the concrete word of God. What we're essentially saying is, I don't have any guts to tell you the truth, so I'm just going to be nice. I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear instead of what you should hear. I don't have enough courage to face the problems in my own life and the sin that I struggle with, so I'm just going to leave you alone too. Which is why many saints won't confront anyone else, because they themselves don't want to confront their own sin. It's that whole, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, we're all good defining it completely contrary to Scripture. Which is fascinating because the most quote-unquote tolerant people in America are the most intolerant. It 
It's amazing to me how many people used to rag on fundamentalist churches for adding a lot of things to the Word of God when progressivism does the very same thing in the opposite direction. In the name of tolerance, I want to shut down your business. I want to shut down your livelihood. I want to shut you out of our family. In the name of tolerance. Listen, the truth is, these are difficult things to practice in our lives. Because our definitions are not what Scripture states. But usually what society or our own feelings tell us. Putting sin to death, church, is difficult. Especially when it lies in your heart. Even the good things that we do for others as Spurgeon said, are masquerated in sin. We don't even know our hearts well enough to know that even the good that we do for others, that we would define as good, is tainted by sin. Listen, just because something is difficult, church, doesn't mean that we ought to give up. Fight the good fight of faith, believer. If you're a saint, Christ has called you to be a saint. He's given you all the tools necessary. It's time to put it into practice. It's time to get back up. It's, star- it's time to start caring what Scripture says. And in caring what, what Scripture says, you are going to start caring for others the way you ought to. But if you're unhealthy, you can't help someone else out which is why the church can't help the world. We need to know who we are. Church, if we're saints and we're called to be saints, it's time to live as saints. We're not always going to feel like saints. I'm sure we all can agree on that. But we can get back up, as Scripture says, the just man rises again. That fall you had last week is not the end. Get back up. So in conclusion, are you living your identity? Are you living your identity? If you're a saint of God, do the things of God matter to you? What's a big tell is whether or not God's word matters at all and whether you're deceived. The believer that doesn't care for the things of God is walking in self-deception. And unfortunately, a lot of believers think they're going to go conquer the gates of hell on their own without using God's word when darkness swallows them whole. Do you care for the precious word of God? Do you care to read it, dwell on it? Study it. Memorize it. Share it with others. Listen, if you're not partaking of this, you have nothing to give others that has any life. You have nothing that you can offer others that has any life apart from this word. Because everything else comes from man who is not good. Oh, man may do a lot of things 
that may line up with some of the principles in the Word of God. But this is the living, breathing, active Word of God. And the only thing that can raise dead to life, spiritually speaking. Your cute stories can't help raise someone to life. Your nice deed may warm their heart, but it will never bring a lost soul to salvation. Which is why the gospel is necessary. You need to know the gospel. If necessary, use words. It's a falsehood. You have to use words. How shall they hear without a preacher? Someone has to say it. Are you one of his, but don't really care to spend time with God? If you haven't spent much time with God, you won't really have much to share about him with others. Which is why we're such frauds. Try to impress people with what we ourselves don't possess. You find yourself concerned about what you look like to others instead of what you already are to Him. As I mentioned earlier, if you are a saint, you are declared a saint based on what Christ has done on your behalf. Period. Now live like it. Live in the identity you've been given. Even when you don't feel like it. Even when you feel like you've fallen apart in not living it out. How's your connection to the body of Christ? You getting tired of doing the church thing? Sunday morning. Got to do this again. Kind of the thing we do. Got to show the kids we care about this. Is that what it means? Is it all a facade? Is there a deeper meaning behind it? Is there a heart that yearns to hear the Word of God on a Sunday morning with your kids, with your spouse? Paul has an encouragement to those who are saints in Galatians chapter 6. Because I'm going to tell you honestly, church, every one of us, including the church of Galatia, had this problem. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You are to do good, reflect God, if you will, to all but especially to those who are of like precious faith. God calls you to have a special union with other believers in Christ. What fascinates me is how many Christians prefer to care for others that they don't even know well than the ones that God's already placed around them. The grass is always greener on the other side, even in churches. 
It's a sad state of the church that cares more about others' approval than the care of their own. Now, maybe you're watching this online and thinking, I'm good. In a cocky, self-deceptive way. Not realizing that God is the only one that can declare you good. Your danger is one of eternity and judgment. You may get away with all sorts of things on this earth. But when it comes time to meet him, your definition, if it doesn't stack up with his, matters very little. God is calling you and I to repent if we do not know him. To turn from sin, because the truth is, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. That's where we start. We start by default as sinners. It literally is in our DNA. And we turn to Christ who became sin on our behalf. On a cross to pay the penalty of sin, which is separation from God and glory. Saints, your struggle with your identity is going to be very largely determined on your practice of what God's word clearly reveals. Whether or not your definition lines up with his will determine whether your identity lines up with his.